I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest is Tim Ash. I met Tim once, around two, three years ago, uh, in one of those large, large events that we both spoke at. And we really hit it off. We spoke about every possible topic that anyone can think of in the few hours before I had to rush to an aeroplane as I continued my mad dash around the world at the time. Tim is a keynote speaker. He is an author. He's a digital marketing expert and advisor. For 19 years, he was the co-founder and CEO of Site Tuners, a strategic optimization agency for which he created over $1.2 billion of documented value for his clients. His clients included some of the biggest names in terms of helping them find the digital marketing approach and initiative, including companies like Google, Expedia, eHarmony, Facebook, American Express, Nestle, Semantic, Intuit, uh, and so many others. Tim is an expert in user-centered design, persuasion, understanding consumer behavior, neuromarketing, and a landing page testing. If you don't know what a landing page is, this is the place where uh, you land when you click on an ad. And his biggest expertise has been in terms of optimizing that place when you land on a website so that you can stay and actually engage with the brand and the product. None of that is what we're going to talk about today uh, because Tim has actually, during the pandemic, uh, finished his latest book, Before that, he wrote about digital marketing, two bestsellers, but then his latest book has nothing to do with digital marketing. It's about unleashing your primal brain, demystifying how we think and why we act. This is a book which goes to the fundamentals of the whys behind our actions from an evolutionary perspective. So let me welcome my once met yet a good friend, Tim Ash. First of all, I want to actually talk about the internet because I have to tell you, I'm a little pissed off with the internet, right? Join the club. Uh, Is that right? (laughs) Oh yeah. Are you kidding? I think it's outgrown itself. It's so ineffective now, unless you're really targeted in what you do and you're searching for something, which I think the internet's amazing. But the distribution engines of the internet are crap. I mean, I have tens of thousands of followers on social media. And, you know, sometimes, always actually, my best posts will be viewed a few thousand times. While, you know, if someone takes a a shot of herself in a bikini on a beach, she'll get a, a few million views or someone who is dancing to, you know, imitating a superstar or whatever. Something got missed around that medium. Well, actually, that has evolutionary psychology roots. What you're talking about is we originally, you know, our, our, the big part of our brain, the cerebral cortex, is not there to put people on the moon or build microwave ovens or do math problems. It's there to figure out our changing 
dynamics in the social tribe. So if I knew you and we met at this conference and I were to do business with you and your daughter dated my son, those kind of things, really complicated social dynamics. And we need to update them in real time. And literally when we stop doing computational stuff, we go back to social world modeling. But the problem is we did that according to Robin Dunbar in small tribes of 100 to 200 close people, most of whom are related to us genetically. And it misfires when we do that in communities of billions of people. So really, who gives a crap about Prince Charles or who gives a crap about the Kardashians? But we, we kind of um, think about them being in our social group and that back in the day had currency and it no longer does because we have no personal relationship to the Kardashians, but we still treat them as important social currency to share and talk about. And so that's where it gets messed up. When we follow someone who has a few hundred thousand followers who does not really know we exist, we actually think that we're part of their family? Yes, that's why magazines, if you go to the checkout in the grocery store, it's always us or People magazine. It's always gossip magazines. Gossip was important for cementing our tribal alliances and for, again, understanding our place in the tribe. But they're not in our tribe. It's a misfiring of evolutionary machinery. Does that mean that the Internet is just magnifying something that is innate in us, but it's magnifying it in a way that doesn't make sense anymore. Exactly right. And, and that's true in the politics too. And that's where I really go off the rails. You know, I have a problem with the polarization and the fact that, you know, Facebook can put us in um, non-overlapping echo chambers where we just get fed the same stuff. So there's a lot of things politically and socially. I think that these are centripetal forces that are pulling us away from the center. And if this continues, we've seen this across many societies, representative democracy won't hold together. There'll be an attempt to control this chaos with some kind of authoritarian responses, which we've seen, you know, in Brazil, Turkey, Poland, US. I mean, it's, it's everywhere, really. UK to different degrees, of course. And embedded in their local culture. But I think the big challenge of our times is community building. We've gone way too far down the individual tailored to us kind of experiences. There's no common frame of reference anymore. Is that the same thing that's upsetting you about the internet? That it's not real anymore. There is no, there is no value in it. Again, as, as I said, unless you're, you know, I'm a, an author like you, so I write all the time, right? And, you know, there is incredible value in searching for a piece of information, watching a specific yeah, how video. Yeah, how-to. If you want to how-to anything, go to YouTube. You'll find a video on it. Exactly. It's amazing, really. But beyond that, I think it's just a mega waste. What, what's upsetting you? Uh, well, the role it plays in society, it's separating and alienating us. The promise was that we will be closer, that everyone will have access to information, that it will level things and um, bring some sense of equality regardless of where you live. And I think that promise has not been fulfilled. We've, uh, it's a combination of social media combined with unregulated monopolies. I mean, the last one that we broke up in the US was AT&T back in the 80s. The last monopoly we broke up and actually it's back together again. It's just as big and dominant as ever, ironically. But uh, whether you look at uh, food distribution, social media, pharmaceutical, there's no more 
competitive pressures. The big guys just sit on top of it all. You know, you worked for Google and control it by the small startups before they have a chance to become competitors. So there's no competition and there's a profit motive to basically slice and dice people up into ad impressions. That's what the internet's become. Yeah. And the way to keep them engaged is to keep them afraid and to keep them separated and to keep them angry. And that is not good for the world. I mean, in an interesting way, when you talk about it, the truth is that we, I don't think we're going to see a, a breakup of a monopoly anytime soon, because now the competition is not between AT&T and the other telcos. The competition is between Google and Baidu and, you know, and, and it's really globally played out on the internet to the point that the U.S. government has no interest in breaking up big monopolies because it makes the U.S. conglomerate of businesses weaker against the international ones. Yes, and so all of those are going in the wrong direction. Sometimes you see these giant elephants fighting among themselves. Right now, for example, Apple is insisting on privacy, which might make Facebook slightly less accessible on their platform. But, you know, those are all around the edges things. They'll figure out digital fingerprinting and they won't need first party cookies anymore. And so there's ways around all the technical stuff. I think the the problem is still um, the role and power of government and individuals versus this historic concentration of wealth in huge companies and among rich individuals. For example, the 13 biggest political donors in the U.S., donated 10% in the last campaign cycle of the total money spent. Think about that, 13 people. Your life for 19 years, almost 20 years, right, was in that digital advertising space. So you, you basically helped all of us, including Google, if I recall correctly, and many of the giants build that digital identity and really use their landing pages properly and, and so on. Yes. Are you still doing that, by the way, at all? Is that part of your business? I had a big change. My mom died about three years ago. And a couple of years ago, I decided that my highest and best use on the planet was not running a professional services firm. So I actually sold my interest off to business partners. They're growing it. It's skyrocketing. It's doing great without me, which probably says something about being <laughs> the right role. And I also stepped out of that conference uh, that I mentioned, which is now called Digital Growth Unleashed in the US, UK, and Germany. And I decided to focus, uh, this will make your heart happy, what makes me happy. <laughs> Good idea. That came from recognizing much more about my own personality and with the environments in which I was effective. So taking a bunch of these um, personality tests. I'm an adventurer on Enneagram. I'm a seven. ENFP, which is the evangelist. On DISC, I'm high dominance, high influence, like you and every other entrepreneur. So that's the initiator. But really, they're all saying the same thing from different perspectives. So I said, I, I'm going to be that evangelist. I'm going to write books. I'm going to speak. I'm going to do a mastermind on neuromarketing. I just put out a new LinkedIn learning course on neuromarketing as well. So it, I want to do things in that arena. I get excited by interacting with people like you. If that's a regular part of my day, that's all to the good. I totally, totally subscribe to that point of view. But I mean, it is a mega bet, Tim. I mean, you leave a very, very large business and you're just saying, okay, I'm going to focus on what makes me happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, mo most people wouldn't take that step. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's kind of a log jam sometimes, you know, log jams building in the river and then just like one or two things break loose and then it flows and reconfigures into something else. I don't think it was any one thing. I think it was like this build up of pressure 
And I think it has to do with life stages. Um, David Brooks, a New York Times columnist, wrote this fantastic book called The Second Mountain. And he's basically saying, you know, your surrounding culture gives you what to do when you're young. And then when you climb that mountain, you have the, the wife and the kids and the money like you did at one point and I did. And then you just say, this doesn't float my boat. And then you consciously choose your second mountain and what you want to do in life and the world. And that has much more to do with service, with some sort of community building. He calls these people weavers and something that resonates for me. And, and, I, and so I think it's partly a life stage thing. Um, I'm standing in what in the American Indian native tradition would be the place of the North already. It's not midlife. It's probably three quarters life. And so my role as the sovereign and the king is to bless others, enable them, teach, mentor. It's not to do anymore. It's to create the environment in which others can express themselves and their lives. I love that. Do you believe that that second mountain is something people should uh, only consider after they've climbed the first mountain? Or can we be a little smarter and go like, man, this thing is hard and it's not really what I want at all? Well, it's hard to say. I think it's an internal imperative, like I say, and some people never get there or they resist it or they're just locked into their pattern so strongly by their social forces around them. I think a lot of people get there through trauma, experience things earlier in life than they normally would. And then that gives them a certain perspective and wisdom. And But that's a, that's a high price to pay as well. Yeah, I know that for certain. I mean, sometimes people ask me and say, Losing Ali triggered that I write Soul for Happy. And I wonder, I mean, if you understand causality of life, if I had written Soul for Happy in 2011, if I, as I always intended to, would life have had to wake me up through the trauma and the pain of losing Ali? I mean, of course, Ali had his own life and it was intertwined with his mother's life and his sister's lives and his friends' lives. It's not all about me. I'm not the, I'm not the star of the movie. Yeah, yeah. That was a great analogy, by the way, in your book, when you're talking about <laughs> we're all the stars of our own movie. Exactly, right? I mean, I think the idea here is, however, maybe maybe we shouldn't wait for the trauma. Maybe we should, uh, we should sort of start early to understand which mountain. My book is this overview of all of evolutionary psychology from earliest life on the planet, brain chemistry, language, storytelling, our social natures, there's culture, there's so much in there. We won't be able to dig into it. But one of the things you just made me think, I want to focus in a little on the chemistry of happiness and at least you know, the biological basis of it. I know your perspective, and I, like I said, you, have, you wrote a beautiful book that I get a lot of value out of. But one of the underpinnings of, you're talking about eliminating someone's pain and teaching them a lesson through your wisdom. And I think people aren't designed for that or life in general isn't designed for that. We have to learn on our own mistakes. In fact, one of the most fundamental happiness chemicals, if you want to call them that dopamine is there to meter out energy. So it's a pretty fundamental thing in life. Should I expend energy in the pursuit of the survival goal? Pretty simple. If you get it wrong, this oh crap circuit goes off in your head and you have to adjust your mental model of the world. The only way that happens is if you make a mistake. I remember all of my painful lessons, whether it was you know disappointing my dad or getting caught cheating in graduate school and almost thrown out to you know, just things I'm not proud of, you know, in terms of raising my kids, yelling at them occasionally. All those things that would just stick in my mind because they were like, oh no, this is not the way to do things. 
So I don't know that we can learn from other people's mistakes. I don't know if a parents can help their children in that way. In other words, I used to think it's like there's people that learn from their own mistakes and people that learn from other people's mistakes. And then I realized there's probably a couple other categories, people that learn from their own repeated mistakes <laughs> and people that never learn. <laughs> so those are by far the bigger category. First of all, by the way, I don't count dopamine as a, as a happiness hormone. I, we can come back to this in a minute. I count serotonin as a happiness hormone. Oh, okay. Well, there's four that I focus on in the book, but yeah, we'll be glad to have that conversation. Let's come back to this. But yeah, but I think the interesting side of this is I, I actually agree that we rarely ever learn from other people's mistakes, probably because we're wired to think, oh, they're idiots. I'm not going to make that mistake, right? But I think we can learn from other people's successes. And I think this is a, a very typical thing that you see in the workplace where you look at a specific boss and, and you know, see how they behave and go like, okay, I can do a little more like them. And so accordingly, of course, when you're on the wrong track, the only thing, the only thing that can make you wake up and learn is a mistake, right? Is a, is a painful uh, slap on your face, right? But sometimes I believe you could actually elect to say, look, you know, here is the Dalai Lama and here is how he behaves in life. And, you know, it's not the most amazing success politically, but it's also interesting. Yeah, the motivation is still internal. The motivation to change or to follow somebody, whether they're a guru or a mentor, still comes from the, I'm not happy with the way things are. So you have to kind of dig at that pain and it's still a negative motivation at its root to say, I need to change something about how the course of my life. I'm not going to just do the status quo bias in the words of behavioral economists and continue on my current path. So in some kind of internal negativity has to arise for you to want to change. Yeah. To, yeah. Um, then you seek out different sources of um, improvement, if you will. Why don't we start from the base? Because I'm very intrigued. I actually did not have a chance to read uh, Unleash Your Primal Brain. Yeah, and I apologize. I, I sent it to you, but it looks like international packages to Dubai are take a little while. Yeah, and actually that might be a good thing so that we can explore it together. You know, to me, you're a, an analytical thinker, so probably a, a, a lot like an engineer, and you're really looking at that topic from a very logical, analytical point of view. Now, what is my primal brain? Why do we want to unleash it at all? I mean, the word primal <laughs> seems to be a little scary to me. What's going on there? Well, uh, let, let's start there. I think that in Western civilization, we've had a long-standing bias about rationality going back to the ancient Greeks. You know, that I think, therefore, I exist in the words of Descartes. And so we're somehow qualitatively different from animals because we can tame our emotions and force kind of a, by force of will or intellect something over that. And it turns out it's not true at all. That basic machinery, that evolutionary arc that I was describing, worked really well for all forms of life. It continues to work inside of us. And we literally can't make a decision without involving emotions. I mean that literally. All the planning brain can do, the conscious part of the brain, is present you with options. But in fact, there are infinitely many options at any given moment of what to do or how to do it. And so what prioritizes that is emotions, essentially aversions and affinities. Oh, this was really awful. I better do something about it. Or, oh, that would be great. I better do something about it. But the strength of the emotion is what determines what we're actually going to do and how we're going to act. So um, I think that overcoming that bias as if being Mr. Spock is some kind of ideal 
is, well, that's my first chapter, the lie of rationality. I think we need to confront that head on. I'm hundred a hundred percent with you, and I and I think the idea of denying that there are other forms of intelligence that are actually really driving us. I will say that emotions, and you know, not just in terms of emotional intelligence, but emotions themselves, are a very intelligent form of looking at the world. It's the only way. Again, uh, by the way, if you haven't, it just won the Academy Award last night. If you haven't seen My Octopus Teacher. My Octopus Teacher. Oh my God, what an amazing documentary. I mean, one of the most advanced forms of brains and life on the planet are octopuses. They just evolved along completely different lines. But if you don't come away from that movie understanding how amazing octopuses are and stop eating them, um, <laughs> I'd be very <laughs> surprised. You know, I was supposed to actually host him here on Slow Mo in three days. We'll see now that he's the Oscar winner if, uh, if we're going to be able to do that. If but, he uh, shows up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, I know he's a very, very, very cool, a very unusually cool person. And I think, you know, probably not going to happen in three days, but I'm, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll hear from him on Slow Mo soon. So your first assessment here is to say primal. By the word primal, you're saying other than rational. Right. So if you look at the, again, the planning brain, which is there primarily for social, for real time modeling of our social tribe of 100 to 200 people, that's what the planning brain is there for. That part, the part that has access to language, gets depleted very quickly over the course of the day. It can only single task. Anyone that's bullshitting you about multitasking has got it completely wrong. And then underneath it is this primal brain, which works at emotion and instinctual levels, takes in billions of impressions every second. Think about it. Everything from the pressure of your butt on that seat right now to the thought stream that you're having to the relationship of every joint in your body. It's why when you eat a salad, you don't stick the fork into your forehead by accident because you know all of that stuff. And most of it's not actionable. So the brain's a giant ignoring machine. It flushes most of that stuff. It doesn't even pay attention to it. It never makes it to consciousness. And even if it does, it won't last long in there unless you sleep on it. Sleep is another critical topic. And it fades over time and it gets overlaid with new stuff. There's no such thing as a like a Black Mirror episode where you can do a life rewind and everything is remembered. Most of the time, the brain's just saying, forget, 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 ignore, ignore, ignore. And that part of the brain works tirelessly. While you sleep, you weren't thinking about keeping your heart beating unless you're an advanced Zen master. You know, you're not thinking about your digestion right now, yet it's still happening. So there's all of this stuff going on that is really 95% of your life, but we pretend that the puppet master and the conscious brain runs the show. Okay, so is what you're attempting to do to not let the puppet master run the show? I'm saying lean into your primal brain, understand how it works. And to me, the red thread through all of that was evolutionary psychology. We have to retrace the whole arc of how we got here. There's some stuff we share, like I said, with early forms of life on Earth, dopamine, as I mentioned. We share that with fruit flies, with insects, for God's sake. So it's not some uniquely human thing about watching those three blinking dots when someone's responding to our you know, instant messenger. <laughs> it's something fundamental about metering energy and in pursuit of goals. But then there's some things that make us uniquely and bizarrely human, like our tendency to spread culture and storytelling and things like that, relatively recent. But having said all that, it's still frozen in amber, like a fly in amber right now. We're not evolving this second. We probably won't evolve 
for much longer if we step off the climate crisis cliff soon, but that's another topic. So the point is to understand how we got here and then say, what part of the brain is kind of in charge of me right now? Is it because I'm hungry or I saw a picture of an attractive woman and that's, I have a different goal now, which is mating all of a sudden, and I'll take higher risks in that environment. So it's becoming more aware of what really drives you. So you can take yourself into account better. You fully got me here because, you know, I publicly talk about this, you know, this in 2021 for me is the year of flow, right? It's the year where I can actually allow life to take me a little further rather than use my hyper analytical, reasonably good machine to make every decision in the planning sense, right? I'm yes. I tend because of the of the breadth of things that I do, you know, I from my startup to writing to slow mo to, you know, speaking engagements to all of the stuff that I do every day, I tend to actually plan really, really well and I think analytically through everything. And this year of flow, so far so good, but I think there is a very long way for me to go. And I think it all resides within the primal brain. Yes. It resides within an area that is not analytical. So, so help me understand, how do we switch off the analytical one and how do we engage the primal one? Well, the primal one's always working. It cooperates with the, I guess you'd say the conscious brain. I prefer to use primal and conscious as my two words. But the, the conscious brain is only turned on if it's something new and not dangerous. Hmm. In other words, if it's dangerous, I'll handle it automatically. Instincts will take over. I don't need to think to run away from the bear that's, that's true. chasing That me. is very true. Yeah. And then also have to determine if it's benign or not. So if it is benign, then, okay, then is it familiar? Tying your shoes, I don't need the conscious brain for that. I've done it a thousand times. So it's familiar. So familiar stuff doesn't trigger conscious thought either. It becomes routinized and habitized, if you will. Those aren't words, but you get my idea. Uh, So the only thing we need the conscious brain for is if it's not dangerous, but novel. What do I do with this thing? I have no frame of reference. If I have this lemon that I'm eating, I know the effect of the lemon. I don't need a frame of reference. I know it's sour. If I put it a little in my water, it tastes a little better and then helps the water go down. That's how I I drink a lot of water. But if I got some... um, I don't know, a mango, and I've never had a mango in my life. What do I do with this thing? That's when I need the conscious brain for new, non-dangerous things. The rest of that time, it's asleep. But then, Tim, we're engaging that conscious brain all the time. Does that mean everything is novel, everything's dangerous? No, we're not engaging the conscious brain all the time. Most of the time, your brain literally, within a split second of you not doing some kind of computation or planning or conscious thing, it goes back to daydreaming about social stuff. It goes back to modeling your social world. Correct. I mean, in every situation, right? I, uh, you know, I've had a thousand relationships in my life, yeah. right? Right. Not romantic relationships, but human relationships, yes. right? Uh, I'm, I'm not that romantic to have a thousand romantic relationships. But anyway, I'm <laughs> <laughs> out wrong, so we need to correct it. So the, the idea here is I still will analyze because I'm using the example as a social example, I'll still analyze every time a new relationship starts. Because it's new. Mm. You just said it right there. Because you don't know what to do with it, you have to think about how is this person acting? What does this mean to me? All of that. Let's go back to social relationships or romantic relationships. You probably remember your first kiss. Uh, Yes, 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 yes. But you probably don't remember your 101st kiss. It's like, yeah, another tongue down my throat, whatever. You know what I mean? 
especially the 101st was actually quite special. No, I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Joker. Yeah, but do you see what I mean? Uh, we only need to calibrate the things we don't know about. We only need to calibrate the new stuff. Okay. And everything else, we have a model. We already say we're not working with the, the reality of it in the moment. We're saying, look, it's a good enough approximation in my head for what this is. And I can deal with it based on my model of it instead of the direct experience of it. Now, you've talked about mindfulness in your book and, and accessing that, being in that present in the flow state, all of that, that. That's really important. I think that's one of the universal wisdoms across all wisdom traditions is being present, if you will. But that is, that's work, and you have to consciously want to do it. But your brain isn't there to work or turn you into something different. It's there just to help you survive. It has much less noble goals, just gene propagation. Um, and so it says, yeah, the model works most of the time and I don't need to update the model unless there's something new that I haven't seen before. If my, my conscious brain is engaged, it's a new experience. It's something I need to handle deliberately if you want. Let's continue then on the primal brain. We've agreed in chapter one that there is so much more intelligence. There is so much more important to unleash the primal brain. Go on. What happens in chapter two? Well, I, I retraced the whole evolutionary arc. I have 23 chapters. I don't think this podcast is going to last long enough to go through it all. But essentially, I retrace it from the earliest forms of life to, like I said, the latest additions that make us uniquely human. And those have to do with culture, or highly social natures, the fact that we're rule followers and sanction others for violating social norms, culture spreaders. I mean, the implications of that are profound. Our brains are the most plastic of any animal in existence. They don't come pre-wired to walk or do anything useful, but we're observing with mirror neurons, which are, we have a lot more of than other animals, everything going on around us. Our body stays underdeveloped until very late, until we have that growth spurt in teenage years to sexual and physical maturity, but that's to allow brain growth in the meantime. Uh, so we're useless blobs because we're learning so much. We're downloading that program like in the matrix. Oh, I want to be able to fly the helicopter. Okay, great. Download it now. You can. So that's what we're doing most of our early life is wiring up the cultural and specific knowledge that's going to help us in our immediate environment. But in order to do that, we also have these adaptations where we live decades beyond our reproductive years. Women are not able to have babies. They live two decades beyond that. Why? Because they're spreading culture. They're paying it backward. They're mentoring others. And so that is unique to us, the mentoring aspect and paying it forward, if you will. All right. So I'll, I'll stop here and ask you to download the next episode and continue our conversation. Listen in as Tim and I will actually go into a few very unexpected places. We'll talk about how evolutionary psychology is getting humanity to where it is today. What's wrong with our politics? What's wrong with our ethics? What's wrong with our society? And uh, the simple question of, is our world going to end? So maybe yes and maybe no. Either way, I think you should enjoy one more conversation on slow-mo. So uh, don't stop now. Uh, please continue and download part two.